All right, our scripture reading for this morning, if you would stand with me. First Corinthians chapter three, verses one to nine. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. It's God's word. Amen. Children, you are dismissed. So, what is spiritual maturity? What does it mean to be a spiritually healthy Christian? Think about that for a minute. New Year's can be a time of reflection, right, on the, on the past year, of the things that happened, what went right, what went wrong. It can be a time of renewed focus on maybe adding habits, Good habits, hopefully, or breaking bad habits. Sometimes people set various goals. So it's a time where many start a new pathway to become healthier people. But of course, oftentimes, about January 15th, we fizzle out. We get maybe discouraged, maybe sometimes even ashamed. But before we dive into the scriptures this morning, I want you to take a minute to just pause for a second and think through what area of your life, what one area of your life might have some spiritual immaturity and unhealth. If you're like me, you could probably say, well, there's a lot. (laughs) But maybe just think about it for a second. What one area where there might be some spiritual immaturity and unhealth? And then, what one area might help you grow, might help you mature as a Christian? One thing you could do, one thing you could think, one thing you could believe. One of the things Paul is doing when he was writing to Corinth was confronting a group of Christians who thought they were 
spiritually special. They thought they were spiritual superheroes. Super duper spiritual. That word comes up often throughout the whole letter. They thought they were full of the gifts of the Spirit, full of wisdom, knowledge of the age, following particular individuals. And you see that as you go throughout all of the letter. That's what we've been talking about for some time. And now as we return to it, we are going to see it again and we're going to see that they may have thought that about themselves, but they were not super spiritual. And so Paul is confronting them. And one of the proofs that they were not spiritual or as gifted and spiritually tapped into the resources of God as they thought they were is that they were divisive. They were factional. Many factions in the church. Another word would be tribal. Probably a word we hear more in our culture. They were into power, knowledge, knowing the secrets. They were into prestige. Some were into wealth. Thought they were way better than the poor among them. Some were into their status. And again, their spiritual status as Christians. They were in a culture that sometimes could treat men as gods. So you think about the Roman emperor and how in Roman Greek culture, the idea of divinity in men. Philosophers also sometimes would become that way. Various Greek philosophers generating all kinds of followers to follow the right guy, usually. And we too, of course, have this problem in, in our world. We can break up into tribes. And social networking has, of course, increased this. When you can just kind of dive down various rabbit holes and get deeper and deeper into whatever it is that you are into. And as I've talked about before, it can be fueled by outrage and rage and anger and always viewing one side as totally wrong and sometimes viewing them with disgust and contempt. Jonathan Haidt, he's a social psychologist. He is not a Christian. Um, but he's written quite a bit on this particular issue. And he wrote in the Wall Street Journal, this is actually a number of years ago, in regards to um, the political situation before 2016, if you happen to remember that time. Um, he said this, Human nature is tribal. We form teams easily. Our minds take to it so readily that we invent myths, games, and sports, including war games like paintball, that let us enjoy the pleasures of intergroup conflict without the horrors of actual war. And he kind of goes on to discuss politics. He puts it this way, But with the exception of the months after 9-11, cross-partisan animosity has been rising steadily since the late 90s. This year, for the first time since Pew Research began asking in 1994, Majorities in both parties express not just unfavorable views of the other party, but very unfavorable views. Those ratings were generally below 20% throughout the 90s. And more than 40% in each party now see the policies of the other party as being, quote, so misguided that they threaten the nation's well-being, end quote. 
Those numbers are up by about 10 percentage points in both parties just since 2014. So we live in a tribal world and politics is one of the main ones, but that can happen in all different types of things. You can see, you know, guys at sports teams at bars fighting over who lost or won, you know, the various team. Um, We can think about um, sometimes among Christians, there can almost be competition. Who's kind of the smartest? Who has the most books? Who has the most knowledge? Uh, Christian moms go deep. Instagram Christian moms about being the best mom in the world um, and competition between each each um, other. Um, you can just go down the list and see this in all kinds of different ways. But the point is, is this kind of way of thinking can infect the church. It's infected it in ancient Corinth. It affects it now. And if we go back to kind of this idea of, well, hey, well, what, what is one area in your life that you think there might be some spiritual immaturity? Or what's one area that you could maybe grow in? Maybe not, but it's doubtful that this would have been a particular area that would have been one of the first ones to come to your mind. We don't always view factionalism and tribalism as a major indicator of spiritual immaturity and sin. Sometimes what comes to our mind is sexual immorality, which, of course, Paul will deal with in this town and in this letter later. Or, I don't know, stealing, abortion, gender issues. You can go down the list of things that come to the forefront of our minds. But we don't always expect this, that a major issue in the church, a spiritual problem, is when tribalism and factionalism develops in the hearts of the people of God. And so one of the things that Paul does here in these in this first paragraph is he helps us see what the symptoms of spiritual immaturity are. And it is factionalism, tribalism. And that's seen by jealousy and strife. That there is a disease. Those might be the symptoms, but the underlying disease is worldliness. A fleshly way of thinking, to use New Testament language. A present age, a this world perspective, as opposed to the age to come. Opposed to the kingdom to come. And so... One of the key symptoms of spiritual immaturity and spiritual unhealth in believers and in churches is tribalism, factionalism. And we see that in this verse, this um, first paragraph. And Paul diagnoses them. He says, well, there's your symptom. There's your problem. But the diagnosis is that you're, actual, you're actually spiritual babies. They are adults in that they look like adults, but it's kind of like they're adults in diapers. They're man babies, woman babies. They are grown men and women who are actually nursing. That's the image. That is the picture. You know, we can kind of make fun of that in our culture, particularly with, with men, sometimes for good reason. 
But, you know, yeah, he's not really much of a man. He's just kind of a baby. Well, that's kind of Paul's picture that he wants us to see. When this is happening in the church of Jesus Christ, that's what you look like. That's what we look like. The message. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, again, paraphrases you always got to be careful with. You don't preach from paraphrases. You shouldn't do intense Bible study from paraphrases. But sometimes paraphrases can capture an image vividly. And this is the way that he paraphrased this particular first four verses. But for right now, friends, I'm completely frustrated by your unspiritual dealings with each other and with God. You're acting like infants in relation to Christ, capable of nothing much more than nursing at the breast. Well then, I'll nurse you. Since you don't seem capable of anything more, as long as you grab for what makes you feel good or makes you look important, are you really much different than a babe at the breast, content only when everything's going your way? When one of you says, I'm on Paul's side, and another says, I'm for Apollos, aren't you being totally infantile? Nope. Is all right? You want to get Hudson? Yep. All right. You good? There we go again. <laughs> Everybody all right? You all right, Beth? You good? Go get the kids. Here we go again. <laughs> all right, Beth? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go check on the kiddos. Thank <laughs> you. 
How did our, our thing do over here? The same? Didn't do much? Looks the same to me? Hmm. Alright, am I on? You guys having fun yet? Hey, but just so you know, some people have left because then they need to go check on somebody. Obviously, very understandable. So do what you need to do. Okay? Make sure, make sure we understand that. Okay, so back to the image, the lovely image of, of um, nursing when you're an adult. Uh, and then we had an earthquake. So, <laughs> so that's, the, that's the picture that he is giving, giving us spiritual babies. Let's look at this paragraph just a little closer. If you remember, back in chapter 2, he's talking about how there's natural people that cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. Okay, Then there are spiritual people. So in just a few verses before, he says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. It's, it's foolishness. This cross stuff does not make sense. He's not, them, he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And then he says, but we have the mind of Christ. So we're different. Spiritual people have the mind of Christ. Natural people, people of the world, cannot understand. They view this all as foolishness. So then, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And interestingly, there are other parts um, like there's a picture when Paul in Thessalonians talks about, hey, I was kind of like a mother to you um, as a nursing mother. Well, that picture is actually a good image of kind of the care and the gentleness of, of his spiritual authority. This one is not. This is a different Greek word. This is, again, the image that we've pictured. This is babies, okay, as infants in Christ. And he's saying, I can't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. That phrase, people of the flesh, is different than a phrase up, up to come here. That's just kind of like made of flesh, just human. Then he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you're still of the flesh. While there's jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh and behaving only. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So the picture there is different than the as people of the flesh. When he says of the flesh in verse 3, he's saying you're living your life characterized by the world's way of thinking, which is, tends to be the way that in Christian circles we talk about flesh and spirit. But there's different ways of talking about flesh. You can just say in just a, it's human, we're flesh. God is God. Okay, just kind of that. Then there's flesh like worldly, sinful, the 
pagan world. That's what he's saying here. You're, you're, you're acting like the way of viewing the world that pagans do when you do this. You're acting like your surrounding culture of Roman gods and philosophers and chasing after certain um, ways of ways of thinking and following individuals and trying to compete and earn status and prestige and have the most knowledge. And so that's what he's saying. Hey, this is the way pagans act. Christians shouldn't act like this. So it's not so much, sometimes in certain circles there's an idea of, okay, there's non-believers and there's kind of like carnal Christians and then there's kind of... Um, Mature Christians. Well, there is this picture of spiritual maturity and some that aren't. But he's not trying to break up into like three different categories. He's just saying, hey, as Christians, we shouldn't act like this. We shouldn't behave like this. We need to have a different way of looking at the world. You're behaving in a human way when you do this. And then, of course, what's he saying that they do? I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. So, you're taking Christian leaders... And you're putting them in a place where they should not be. Okay? And, and we definitely do that in, in our culture. Um, we do that throughout church history. We tend to follow particular people. As always, there can be a grain of truth in that. Like there's other parts where the Apostle Paul tells us, hey, remember your leaders, treat elders with double honor, things like that. Where, well, yeah, there's a sense in which you honor a leader. That's great. That's okay. But it's when you're following it as if it's a competition where you're getting just kind of so stuck on one guy, there's going to be a problem. And so, that, you know, like we got study Bibles with men's names on them. Some of us have them here. It's not necessarily that that's bad, but that itself can be a, a revealing. If, if we're only kind of looking at one person, we're also going to pick up their, their flaws and their issues. You probably read about or heard about in evangelicalism, celebrity pastors. Um, and sometimes we associate that with maybe the pastors, like the cool pastors or the ones that hang out with movie stars or whatever. But there's also just in general, there's no doubt we break up in these little, kind of got the, uh, the key charismatic spiritual gift people hearing from God, hearing words over here and all the names that go with that. You got the theological, biblical scholars and all the names that go with that. And this can happen in kind of both sides of, of the church. Like, well, that... I'm in some circles like that guy's totally anointed and he's just amazing and God's always talking to him and this and that. Um, and it can, and it can create this kind of classism and spiritual levels, which is not what it is to be in Christ. That can also happen on the more conservative, theologically minded, biblically minded types. Kind of got your hero, the only one that kind of sits on your shelf. And that too can be an issue. Um, because God has given a body a diversity, arms and legs and noses and hair and foreheads and, and, and all, of, all of that. So there is a danger when you just start to chase one particular person. Okay, um, There can be a kind of sectarianism um, and it can really get weird fast. And I was thinking of this in terms of sometimes we can, there's kind of like a healthy view of church leadership. And then there's two different sides of an unhealthy view. There's the one side that you follow men and it shows that you're following men because when they fail you and they disappoint you or they end up with a scandal, like we see all throughout Christianity today, um, you end up in disappointment, despair. Maybe this whole thing isn't true. 
Um, uh, there's a word right now called deconversion. Well, forget the church. I'm done with it. All these, all these people just keep failing. Okay? That can happen because you're just so attached to that individual. And on the other side, too, it can, it can also happen, which is more here. It's not that they're falling away, so to speak. It's that they're just so into their person that they are dividing among them. Okay? They are focused on elitism. This one's way better than your guy. Okay? And so both of those are, are errors and pagan ways of thinking. And what happens is when, when that side of the, of the cliff happens, then you end up fighting a lot, quarreling a lot, bickering a lot. It's all about your particular theological view. And again, this is not, I'm not, I'm not trying to flatten to say just all things are equal and anything goes and nothing like that. But there can be an attitude of you can become so nitpicky and quarrelsome that it is deep, wrong sin. And we see that. You can see that. Sometimes certain discernment ministries, when, when all you do is you're just Mr. and Mrs. Critic all of the time because you follow your one person, you don't really have a good sense of church history and the broadness of, of um, God's mercy and benefits that he's given different teachers and traditions. The point is, that can be a problem. Being quarrelsome is a sin. And it even talks about elders should not be quarrelsome. Should they preach the truth? Yes. But if they're just looking for a theological fight all the time, it probably reveals some underlying issues. So, that again is the diagnosis. Um, Verses 5 to 9, you have more of what I would say the how to become spiritually mature. So then, what is the proper way? Um, God, how can I become, how can I grow in this area? Where might factionalism and strife and jealousy and envy and competition be in my heart? Um, how can I get that to change? says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So, how can you adjust that in your heart? View Christian leaders as servants. This is the picture of deacon. Not, sometimes at churches you'll have, there's the elders and there's the deacons. It's not in the office sense. It's in more of just deacons as in their servants. That's all that deacon really means. They're table waiters. They're out serving the food. They're the servers at the restaurant. Okay, Bob Hapgood is a servant of Christ. He's, in a sense, the table waiter. You pick your favorite. You know, you go through, again, we could name MacArthur and Piper and Francis Chan, and you just go down various groups and just name all the different people that might be on your shelf or on your YouTube videos or whatever it is that you do. What are they? They're servants. They, they serve the food they serve what god has given us in his in his word and when we fall on the side of elevation of leaders we adopt the views of a pagan and sinful culture so remind yourself all these people whether it's a local hero somebody you really respect which again is good to honor and respect and to glean from but remember, they are servants of Christ. That's all that they are. They are not Christ. 
they are limited. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And notice how it ends with ED. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. His growth keeps on going. For one, every single one of those guys is going to die. All of your present day heroes. When you look at church history and maybe some of the heroes that you love to read and um, glean from, what are they? They're dead. <laughs> they have a limited amount of time. God keeps doing the growing. Different workers, different gardeners, different contractors. It's all going to change, but God is the architect. God is the one who created the ground. So, humans are limited. God is the one that gives the growth. God is the actor not the person that you follow. You should be following Him. God is the owner. And so this whole section, this whole paragraph is all contrasting the work of God with the work of man. This is what men do, but God is the grower. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. So they're all the same. They're all on the same team. Apollos and Paul, they're on the same team. Paul may be kind of the church planter. The evangelizer Apollos was a a really smart guy, very equipped in words. Some people think he might have written Hebrews. Who knows? But the point is, he was probably more of like a teacher. And certain people are like, well, I don't really like Paul that much. He's this, that, and the other thing. And I really like the good meat and teaching and words of Apollos. You know, he's, He's like, hey, I'm the planter. He's the waterer. All of us are one. We're all on the same team. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. That paragraph will, or sorry, that sentence will hit next time because it kind of gets unpacked further later. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So Christian maturity is God-centered in practice, not in theory. So that means... We can read this right now and go, yep, that's what I believe. You know, God's the one who gives the growth. God's the owner. It's God's field. It's God's building. But then sometimes we don't act that way. We don't actually really believe it when it comes to the way in which we live our lives. And so the way to grow is to really recognize that and to say, Father, help me really see you are the builder of the church. You are the owner. At that time in Corinth, sometimes they would name buildings after the benefactors. You know, we even do it around here. Arkley Center. You know. Well, so we are God's building. This isn't Hapgood's building or garden. You know, you think about various local pastors around here, like it's not somebody you talk about it as if it's their church. You know, it's Bob Hopkins' church. No, it's not. <laughs> you know, it's whoever else's church. No, it's, it's God's church. He is the owner. And that should be encouraging. Because when men and women that are Christians fail you, <laughs> which will happen, if your heart really believes God's the owner, God's the one who gives growth, it's going to be okay. 
and your faith isn't hinged in men, your faith is hinged in God, then you're going to be able to weather the various storms that come. And you're going to be able to be strong and mature. And that should be encouraging to us this year. So what's a way to grow? Believe that. And believe that for yourself. Be yourself, wow, I'm actually God's building. I am God's field. And when I think about Kate and I's house, buildings got a lot of messes. Fires, contractors, water damage, chimneys falling over because of earthquakes. You go down the list. Buildings can have some problems. <laughs> um, but when you're God's building, God is making you. God is helping. God is renewing you. There's a sense in which be patient with yourself, not to excuse sin. Hey, you're still a work in progress. This church right here is still a work in progress. The nation, the national church, meaning people in America, the church, a work in progress. Global church, work in progress. You just go down the list. We're a work in progress, but it's God's. He is building His church. He is building His people. And that's one of His ultimate purposes. He says, they will be my people. I will be their God. That's what he says in Revelation 21. He's making a bride adorned for himself. So, our identity is in God. He is our owner. Believe that and all the grace that is in that. To really believe it for yourself, for the church, for the world. Hope and trust in God this year. Grow in really believing that and seeing that. And that's not going to come by looking around at other people. It's going to become by looking at Christ and looking at His cross. Like you said earlier, we boast in the Lord. We don't boast in men. Salvation is from the Lord. It's from Christ. He's our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. We have a crucified Savior, something that's viewed as weakness in the eyes of the world, but is our only hope. So when we come to communion, all of us eat at the same table. doesn't matter who you are, and all your favorite leaders in church history ate from the same table. Body and blood of Christ. It's to show, it doesn't matter what privilege you are, what status you are, the education you are, how many Christian books you read or didn't read, you go down the big list, how many different areas. When you think about some of our Christian leaders and the things that they believe and the things that they did, there's some people that wouldn't even be in our church. <laughs> um, and so you got to have a big view. Okay, Some of your favorites had some big issues. And if you look online, some of the favorites right now have some big issues. Um, but God is the owner. We all come to the same table saying, hey, this is about Christ. We feed on Him. And so we turn our eyes to His body and His blood that we are a part of. We are God's field, God's building. This is His table. And so let's remember that today. Thank you. Come on up.
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Of course, often, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come quickly, Jesus.
bless you. You're dismissed.